Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance.
All right. Good evening. Good evening. How are you doing, Joe? I'm, I'm doing okay. All right. All right. So, dear listeners, we are visited uh, tonight by our friend uh, Joe, who lives in Alaska at the moment. Mm-hmm. Quite. How's Alaska, Joe? Is it on fire? It's not on fire anymore. Um, you guys are getting all our cold air now. So it's actually a beautiful sunny day out today. Oh, good. I mean, yeah. fuck us anyways. You guys had it. You guys have it rough all the time. You don't even have right. sun most of the time or half the time. How long yeah. you, how, how long are you in darkness? Like months? Um, well, it's it's uh Yeah, starting in about October, it starts getting really dark at about six o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And then uh, until about April, May, um, you just have a very long nighttime. So, Joe, you got to replace the battery on that smoke detector, yeah. buddy. Or throw a cat at it or something. I, I went to go buy a, a nine volt battery today and it was $15 for a single <laughs> battery. So I, I opted out. I decided not to. Wow. You really live in the 19th century. That's, well, that's yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry for ruining your podcast. No, no. I, you know, I will painstakingly edit out every single one of those. No, I actually probably won't. I hope he doesn't. No. Um, if okay. you could send me one in the mail, that'd be all right. So, uh, I think we all have a lot to say. I uh, should probably inform the listener. We're, this is the Joker episode of the mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, obligatory or not, I think we right. all have a lot to say about it. Um, I've written some stuff. I took the time to watch Todd Phillips' Gigi Allen documentary as a sort of contextual mm-hmm. framework for um, watch for discussing Todd Phillips' obvious masterwork, mm-hmm. Joker 2019. Uh, so I'll let you guys begin with your own comments and then we can kind of get into like the more theoretical shit later. Sure. I think, uh, Uh, I'm sorry, as a guest, Joe, yeah, you can feel free to get us started. Um, I guess, well, when you guys invited me on to the podcast, um, I, the, the reason this sprung to mind was just, I was, I was shocked like before I saw the movie at just how reactionary the press was being about this movie yeah and i didn't understand like why um i kind of agree with like felix's take that if you had dropped this movie in like 2005 2006 um there wouldn't have been like you know military briefings on making sure there weren't shootings and stuff like that right and uh, that had was kind of connecting to other ideas i'd been sort of been dealing with where um, I just, I felt in general, like people weren't, didn't have a taste for like anti-heroes or, anymore, or, um, I, it was the, yeah, I, I don't want to go on too long, but no. basically the, we want the, you to go mo- on as long as you want. So let's, let's okay. get in the weeds and just, well, so, just, just so, sorry to interject. I accidentally muted you for a second. You were saying you're referring to the Chapo Trap House episode where they're discussing the Joker film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and Felix talks about how if you had dropped that, you know, a little over 10 years ago, um, people would have thought you were like a crazy, like Christian mom type activist uh, or something. Mm-hmm. If you thought that this movie was like really dangerous or anything like that. And I just find that to be like really concerning in an environment where um, we're dealing with uh, 
issues that require, you know, speaking truth to power very directly. Um, I know in like previous episodes, you guys had praised Greta for um, just how unaffected she is. Like she just kind of delivers the truth. And I felt like this movie, I think it has a lot of, a lot of flaws uh, in, in terms of just basic filmmaking. But I thought the level of discomfort that people showed in this movie, both in the press and the people I saw it with, um, just reflected, I don't know, like, I just don't understand, like, why people uh, felt so on edge about this film. And I was more curious just to pick your guys' brains on that first before we get into the movie proper. Okay. Um, you have a response, Brian? Yeah, I was, uh, was going to add that. Um, to, I mean, to that point, Joe, I don't see a lot of films in the theater, but... I, the showing we went to, there was a number of people here in, in East Grand Forks, I guess it would have been. And I don't think I'd seen people try to get up and exit the theater as quickly as I'd ever, I mean, as that film ever in my life. People, they literally could not even wait for it to end, it seemed like, before they were trying to get out of there um, for, I think, the reasons you point to. Um, and so that's interesting. And that's what that's what sort of drew me to it is a film that can sort of react to people in that visceral way, I think, is interesting. And that's why I, I don't know if we haven't talked about it um you know, in person, but I sort of put something on on the Facebook about um, Antonin Artaud and the theater of cruelty, and that's kind of what where my brain was going. And he certainly had mental illness, and there seems to be some. Could Antonin, you talk, talk about that? Sure. Oh well, yeah. Theater of cruelty. Um, Artaud's theory then uh, was essentially that you have to, you know, he was reacting against. Um, I should say the what he saw as kind of nonsense in the modern um, early 20th century European theater saying, we need to get back to this um, epic blood curdling, shrieking, like serious, um, I guess, unsettling uh, sort of, sort of theater, I suppose um, in the 20th century, uh, much like it used to be in antiquity, I suppose. And such that um, the, the audience member, of course, and maybe he's thinking about Brecht in a way too, uh, the audience should go to the theater the way they expect to go to the dentist, basically, right? Like knowing that this is going to really unsettle you emotionally and p uh, potentially physically, right? Um, not that you're going to die, but that you might come, you're not going to come out of that experience unscathed. And it was really interesting for me to see a film that was seemed to be capable of doing that to people. Um, and I hadn't seen that in, in a long time, but... So that's just my general take on that before we get into more detail. But um, to the point about uh, the reactionary press, um, I was going to say Joe, too. I mean, I noticed that. And what was interesting to me is a lot of those sort of folks, the liberal, the liberal establishment and so on, seemed to their concern was, oh, this film equates vent, uh, mental illness uh, with violence. Right. And so you have um, sort of a professional, I guess, history of background working in. Uh, mental illness or with people with mental illness and i didn't know if that's something that you wanted to speak to um as part of your response as well well um i'm not sure how much i have to say about that it's been a little while since i've uh, worked in mental health sure but um i will say that uh just as somebody who's been in that world that uh, a lot of the milder stories that you'll tell people about working with people who are in situations not too different from uh, from Flex in the film. And uh, obviously it makes them deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Um, and that was honestly part of why I, I got out of that whole field is um, you're not just invisible to the people that that system is trying to kind of quarantine you from. You're also invisible to the people who are trying to take care of you just in a, in a kind of a systematic way. Um, 
And I, I can think of quite a few individuals that I've worked with in the past who probably saw this movie and thought it was, you know, incredible. Um, but I don't want to speak for them or go into that too much. Um, I will say, uh, as far as things I've learned from my own job, and this this speaks more to your kind of invocation of the theater of the absurd. Um, so I, I'm working at a bookstore right now, and uh, we we deal a lot in used books, and we're the only like major used bookstore in in the state. And one thing I noticed especially when I started there was there was like a serious lack of like, we were always shorthanded on stuff that like Latreya Mont or uh, Celine or like Henry Miller, stuff like that. Um, and I, I looked at the numbers cause we have catalog information going back like, you know, 20 years. And it seemed to me and do with this what you will, but it seemed like around 2008, 2009 is when the interest in sort of, uh, anything that that was especially incisive. Um, I'm thinking of other other writers, yeah, Burroughs, Jean Genet, stuff like that. Interest fell off hard around the time that the recession kicked in, and um, I feel like that's meaningful. But I don't know if I'm the best person to try and derive meaning from that necessarily. I think uh, my like re reflexive theory for that would be we no longer needed to seek out um a provocation to articulate or, uh social distress or um social unraveling since it was happening all around us like so if in parallel to like if you recall back in the um right around the time of the recession when we were organizing with SDS there was all this talk about how do we get people to give a fuck about any of this stuff cuz people seemed sort of generally apathetic i don't think we face that problem anymore because mm -hmm. people are day-to-day -day dealing with um levels of economic despair that have been unseen you know for 80 years or whatever 100 years uh like t t for instance yesterday jimmy Dore really uh, posted a video where he's interviewing jill stein about all this crazy russiagate hillary clinton bullshit and she quoted a poll that came out where 70% of Americans are quote fighting angry uh, at the entire political establishment. So, um, and that's not the full like answer to what you're pointing at, but I, I think it's interesting that like, like take Janae, for instance, I was gonna, I, I, I can't speak on it uh, fully because I haven't honestly read the whole play, but that, the that play he has whatever it's called the black clowns or something where he's got all these people in blackface in mm -hmm. france um that to me seems like you know obviously like a huge uh provocation just like so to take a maybe more familiar example um spike lee's bamboozled from whatever 2002 or mm -hmm. three or whatever where you have as, as a means to break out of kind of like a black middle class sick uh uh a black TV writer wants to break out of the cosmification of black life. And he's pissed off that he keeps getting pigeonholed in by these racist white producers to doing a certain version of what black life looks like on TV, all the while getting spoken to in a very racist fashion. But since, and it's Michael Rappaport, you know, brilliantly is this like 
obscene racist TV producer, but Hey, I'm, I'm married to a black woman. Like I'm down. Like mm-hmm. I know I can say the N word. I can do all this shit. And so he, he writes a show. He writes a new millennium minstrel show where instead of having white actors in blackface, he has black actors wearing blacker faces portraying these cartoonish, um, you know, like extreme versions of like minstrelsy, which in the 19th century was the most popular form of uh, American popular culture. Mm -hmm. So like you didn't need to do that in 2010 or 11. You just needed to walk out your front door, you know, go to whatever your local Occupy meeting was and everybody else is just as pissed off as you are. Well, if I can interject quick and then ask a question to Joe, maybe the answer uh, Amos just gave is sort of similar to um, the reaction we're seeing in the press amongst uh, reactionaries and or even the liberal press such that they're feeling like things are so terrible right now. We don't need a film like this because it um, like people can't handle it or maybe these particular writers themselves (laughs) can't handle it or something like that. Yeah, I I would say I don't know my. My reaction to that is that it was specifically like the liberal press that was being so reactionary. Like that was the thing mm-hmm. that was strange to me is that it seemed like there was a portion of, of uh, the liberal, I don't know, liberals and the left that seemed to, something has happened in the past, you know, decade or so that has turned them into like sort of, I don't know. Moralists? Like it's, moralists like yeah like christian mom like you know video games cause violence all, all that shit it's it's just so bizarre to me that that's coming back in such strength and i i noticed it before this movie came out it was just when it was ramping up um and people were anticipating it that i noticed that things were getting really out of control in terms of the way you you felt almost like the press was counting on there being a shooting or something like right. that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then there wasn't so right. I can here I have an explanation, you know, whatever theory. Um, I think the reason that the liberals were reacting the way they were is because they sensed that this was not an incel movie, but a true left wing movie. And their their political role in the ideological apparatus is precisely to constrain what the what the left is allowed to say. So um you know, I went to the film either the first or second night uh, just because I couldn't wait. Like, I didn't – I had no patience to – I mean, I'd wanted to see it way before all this hype anyways um, for many reasons. But then when I saw the second trailer and I was started to actually feel shit watching it, I was like, oh, this is like a real fucking movie. Um, you know, the joke me and my friend had was like – and I said something to you uh, through text, Joe, about like, you know, like getting shot at the movie is a that's that's a feature, not a bug. Like that's that's a good thing. Ha ha. But like um, there was so it, I saw it in East Side too, and they have house lights. And I asked them three times to turn the house lights off because they had the house lights on the whole fucking movie. And oh, and they told me, you know, and these are young kids, so I don't like there was no like there was no like 35 year old 50 year old person there to tell me if this was really true or not. But they're like, we turned them down as much as we can. And I'm like, since when they're never on 
like even in a low way before because you're in a fucking movie theater. Like I've never seen that before. And it was only later that someone suggested maybe it's because it's this movie and they they were doing this as a precaution. And maybe, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if they were ordered to by somebody, but like it, it like I'd never had that experience before. And it's obviously distracting because you're literally seeing lights in your periphery and shit. Um, but and maybe it was just because I went in the first couple of days, but like nobody seemed like averse to it. Mm. Um and it maybe it's just, again, because the true heads were there right away. Mm -hmm. Like, I was sitting next to a family of, like, like maybe a 25-year-old, uh, fairly well-dressed young woman and her parents, who are, you know, probably 50s, 60s. And uh, they didn't seem particularly put off by any of it. And then the, you know, I was, I had fears about, like, violence, too. I mean, you know, that it's... Like we talked about, like if you have a <laughs> the Batman movie that didn't even feature the fucking Joker in 2012 triggered some mass shooting mm -hmm. by that dude in Colorado before anybody had even seen the movie. Uh, so it's reasonable at some level that they were afraid of this sort of reaction. But um, I think it was more like the actual experience of seeing it in the content of the film had way more to do with articulating social deadlock. Like... And this is why I'm saying it's a left-wing movie. The, in the maybe this is, can transition to getting into the content of the film. Like, um, at no point was Fleck ever comfortable with any political role imposed on right. him. Right. Like he kept rejecting that and didn't. Like he, I think he took sort of he was kind of gratified by the fact that people were using him as like a a flag to fly, as a mask to wear to fight the system or, or however they perceive themselves, like to fight back against the excesses of rich people. But, um, he was also confused by it. Like he, that wasn't his, that wasn't the, the horse he had in the race. And like, I think it's really interesting. Like you, Joe, like you had mentioned, there seemed to not be a taste for antiheroes in film in the last decade or so, which I totally agree with. Uh, which is extremely interesting given that this film is on pace to crack 900 million. Mm -hmm. This is a $55 million movie. This movie costs half as much to make as Venom did. And so like, yeah, <laughs> that's fucking nuts. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like in terms of scale of production, those Avengers movies cost like the last two cost about $500 million. We don't even know the exact numbers because Disney won't release them. But if we say conservatively that it was $250 million a movie, you're talking about a movie that cost five times less that made half as much money. That's mm -hmm. completely, un obviously unprecedented in several ways. But also, like, as, you know, everybody from, like, even meatheads see how masterful this thing is. Mm -hmm. Like, Joe Rogan was like, this is a fucking masterpiece. And I agree with that. Like, the the quality of the quality of affect and the care with which it was shot and the production design. I mean, it, it blows anything else that came out this year, at least completely out of the water. And then you have like, to your point about the, th there's a, an interesting split in um, the response in Hollywood. So when they premiered this film at Venice and other film festivals, it was getting standing ovations at the end. And then immediately after when people, the Oscar buzz started, there chunks of the 
Academy were like, we refuse to watch this movie because this is a right wing, you know, incel movie. Mm -hmm. It's not a fucking incel movie. Like he has a girlfriend. She's a fantasy, but it's not that's not his problem. Like his problem isn't I can't get laid, quote unquote. His problem is a more fundamental social humiliation that that Mm -hmm. results from total social breakdown externally on the streets. Um, and so you have the fact that it cracks $900 million globally, which is, you know, totally, probably completely unprecedented for a budget this big. And then like, take, you know, like get out made whatever $200 million off of probably a $4 million budget or $20 million budget. Like that, that was a huge, that got Jordan Peele. He can make whatever the fuck he wants now. Um, and thankfully this is what will probably happen for Todd Phillips too. Um, but like, so just the, you know, the, the political economy of the filmmaking itself, like it obviously touched a nerve with everybody. Mm -hmm. There's obviously an actual taste for this. It's just that Hollywood spent the last 10 years cashing in on this Marvel franchise. Um, it already beat black Panther, which is really interesting because black Panther was sold as the big progressive liberal movie last year, even though, you know, well, yeah, I, I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, I, was, I just wanted to say like this, the industry aspect of it is, 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 uh, you know, as far as Disney fighting against this movie and how, uh, how much of an aesthetic contrast there is between this movie and the Marvel stuff, mm-hmm. that's all obvious, but there's also like a political aspect to that because like all the Marvel films, uh, are very, they endorse the idea that like, um, like the Avengers are in deep with like the CIA and like the like the the Pentagon mm-hmm. and even even beyond that, um, the moral of every story is that like ultimately it doesn't even matter what the fuck the military says. It's just this like group of kind of touched uh, chosen people that get to decide like the fate of the world or whatever. And we're supposed to think that's like good. And uh, yeah, the, the the Marvel films have rubbed me the wrong way for a long time uh just on on that front yeah um, other than the fact that they don't really feel like real movies most of the time there's, mm-hmm. there's a few of them i like but right uh, i mean the primary left-wing movers like as far as film by film like the most left-wing marvel movies are thor ragnarok and the first ant-man i would argue where there's actually something going on in terms of like proletarians and being dejected at some level um but with black panther it's act at I don't the the obvious like the, the overt CIA tie-in with Black Panther is pretty gross, but I think like you know as people have argued, Zizek and others like Killmonger is obviously like the hero of Black Panther as a leftist. Like he's not really there's nothing you can argue against in terms of what he's doing. Even the brutality of it seems sort of if not justified, at least sort of. Uh, pales in comparison to the structural violence he's responding to um that being like, even people even people who love that movie will say that killmonger was the the better character right and the, the reason they kept watching and like but. i i totally went into that movie i waited months after the hype because i didn't want to deal with the gushing liberals you know loving the fact that idea id poll wise like wakanda is some, some you know achievement or whatever that being said for for kids for black kids to see mm-hmm. that is probably really productive and I'm I'm down with that but as far as like I mean even Kendrick Lamar who was championing the film um and like paying for kids to go see it who couldn't afford it 
he was like, I identify more with Killmonger. Um, and so what I thought was so interesting, because I hadn't seen any of Ryan, what is it, Coogler or whatever his name is. I hadn't seen his other movies. And I was surprised at how sophisticated it was, how much ambiguity there was around. The question of the film was, who is the real legacy of the Black Panther? Is it Killmonger uh, or is it T'Challa? And so <clears throat> like, I think it's sort of left generally open, um, which is productive as well even though there's plenty of annoying shit in there like and then there's the whole like i think one of the most cringeworthy elements of that whole mcu is cap's sort of like um pandering to t'challa's goodwill like it's really gross and condescending um and i like chris evans um but like you know maybe to your point like there's some there's some definite like gross shit going on in the mcu generally um but so anyway so that just by way of contrast then with joker like i i think it's one of the reasons i knew this movie would be good is because suicide squad was so good and people fucking hated suicide squad um which i didn't really understand why people on the left hated suicide squad because it's obviously like harley quinn's you know destroyed reality kind of like she's getting some just desserts uh at that level and like i don't have any patience for the the rest of the like the dcu has largely been a flop like uh, wonder woman i couldn't even get through five minutes of man of steel was a huge letdown batman versus superman boring couldn't do deal with it like um aquaman i'm not even i don't even need to explain that but <laughs> like but it seems like uh like with suicide squad they sort of broke through into something a little more interesting and um the other reason i figured this would be good is because what i've my emergent theory about like the dc side of the the divide is um so if like if we're going to contextualize joker within the batman universe at all i think it's important to talk about who grew up with which Batman? So Joe and I grew up primarily with the animated series Batman, mm -hmm. which was the most sophisticated version of Batman on film, I think, that has ever emerged, even mm -hmm. more so than the Nolan stuff, even mm -hmm. though Nolan, the Nolan version drew a lot from that particular Batman. And in the past three years, I went back and watched a lot of uh, I think I watched every animated Batman movie that's been made since the 90s, at least the ones I could stomach. And what was so shocking about it is <clears throat> if you watch those movies, a lot of them are focused on Robin one way or another. And in every case, Robin is trying to actually solve the social problems. So in I think it's it's either Red Hood or Bad Blood. I can't remember um, this new quote-unquote villain emerges who's taking over the drug trade. He's taking out all the kingpins and he's consolidating the drug trade and then it's revealed that it's Robin. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to stabilize the drug market so that the crime goes away. And of course, Batman is, a, you know, is horrified by this because you can't break laws. You can't deal drugs. That's bad. And Robin, Robin's position is, you know, he's the actual proletarian. He's the one who was an orphan 
adopted by this rich guy, trained in all this, you know, all these fighting styles and given all this technology. And then the second he's about to actually solve the problem, Batman steps in and fights him. The same with the killing joke. Robin finds out that the Joker killed his parents. Robin's response is reasonable. Okay, then I'm going to go fucking kill the Joker because he keeps uh, he keeps committing crimes and hurting people. And then Batman's like, don't sink to his level. And it's clear that it's so obvious that everything that's going on is about Batman maintaining his position as a crime fighter and never having to talk about the fact that he's a billionaire mm-hmm. and won't do shit to address real social problems. And so like, that's what I think is that's what's resonating with people about the Joker is that the Joker emerges as a sort of, as a mask, a myth, a character in response to like, like what is he's sort of like, I mean the laughter, if if we're talking specifically about the Joker film, his laughter is unsettling. And what was so striking about it is Todd Phillips is a comedy director by and large. Nothing in that yeah. movie was funny at all. Mm-hmm. Like not once. I was going to interject and just, and you can continue to follow that thought, but that I, there were, again, the group that I was with who couldn't wait to get out of there, there were several scenes where they were laughing at what was happening mm. in that movie. And I, and like my wife and I watched it together. We were not cause we're like, that's, that's horrifying or whatever. And I, and I and I wasn't sure how to how to take that, and I didn't know why this particular audience thought, you know, Arthur running into the door in the hospital that won't open for him. Like, why that's so funny when he's in this sort of like tra- traumatized state, et cetera, right. et cetera. But so you were saying, well, Joe, if you okay. want to interject mm-hmm. or anything. Well, I, I I guess that I'm possibly a little bit more of a psychopath than you guys. I didn't <laughs> laugh. That's why we asked I, you I on didn't... the show. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't laugh uh, that much during the movie, but during the scene where he's visited by his uh, old coworkers, the one that screwed him over by giving the gun and everything, mm-hmm. uh, my my friend uh, Caitlin and I were like losing our shit like the entire time. Basically. Okay, like, and I thought I thought that scene was specifically meant to be like the funny scene, and then the rest of it is uh, stuff you're not sure if you're supposed to laugh at. Mm-hmm. Right. I know during my my viewing of it, there was like a lot of like nervous laughter, like people maybe felt beats that weren't there and felt like that was the moment that they were supposed to laugh. Uh, I got more of that than anybody laughing genuinely at at the movie. Yeah. Um, To that point, I myself, like I was laughing a little bit at that sort of Tim and Eric quality of like, what the fuck is going on Mm -hmm. here and there, but nobody was laughing at the same time. Right. To your point. Like it was just, it was a a smattering that hadn't almost nothing to do with the action on screen relative to like what you were supposed to feel or whatever. Yeah. And I, I guess I wanted to speak to you. Um, you, you kind of brought up other versions of the Joker. Um, so, some of the people I went and saw this with kind of weren't feeling this movie as much as I guess we are. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that had to do with the fact that um, he, Joaquin's take on it, he never fully manifests like the old archetype of the Joker, where he's like a sadist that has like plans within plans. Right. That this was entirely like he uh, is only the Joker insofar as he's sort of like the impetus for like a larger uh, situation. Uh, that's mm-hmm. uh, you know the big movement, people putting clown masks on and whatnot. I was also thinking of there's this old Punisher 
uh, meets Batman comic that I had when I was a kid that ends with um, it's like a back alley scene. The Punisher and Batman were both pursuing the Joker and Punisher is just a little bit ahead and Punisher like corners the Joker and ha puts a gun to his face. And there's like a frame where the Joker like realizes like, holy shit, the Punisher is actually going to kill me. And then Batman spends the next like 20 pages, like stopping. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Stopping the Punisher from, and his justification is basically just like, this is my city. And, uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I need the Joker. I mean, and that's was that was Heath Ledger's trump card in, right. the, in the, in right. the 2008 dark Knight was like, we're going to keep fucking doing this forever. Mm -hmm. Cause this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And, and I just wanted to, to kind of, uh, annotate what you're saying a little bit. Like that animated series version of Joker is fucking funny. Like, and he's always fucking with everybody and he's legitimately slippery. So it's like, and it's just a wonderful um, accident of history or dialectical move that it's Mark Hamill who plays that Joker. That's right. You know, everybody's fucking hero is like the most evil, uh, effective villain ever. And he's actually funny. Like, I think the most kind of telling, one of the reasons that's one of the better Jokers, I think, is because he's always... Like, he gets super vicious, and he'll be really abusive to Harley Quinn. But then he'll soften at the drop of a hat. Like, if Batman corners him and gets pissed, he'll be like, oh, Batsy. You know, like, this weird... <laughs> he gets... Um, he starts doing vaudeville. Like, mm -hmm. like they capture the vaudevillian dimension of the Joker, I think, better in the animated series than anyone else. Except maybe, you know, this one. Mm -hmm. Um well, the an the animated series, it should be said, is just the best version of Batman and the whole mythos, anyway. Yeah, agreed. Uh, that, that, sh that show that show is way better than it has any right to be um, as a as a show for like kids. Um, yeah, absolutely. There are, there, are, there are scenes from it today where if I encounter them, they still um, affect me, mm -hmm. which is sort of embarrassing. But at the same <laughs> time, like, I don't think that. I can't even think of like another kid show that even like compares to that at all. No, um, I'm surprised at the amount of shit that they got away with back in the day on that show. Yeah, I mm -hmm. was too. That was sort of coming out right when I was, you know, starting college or whatever. So I was kind of quote too old for it, even though I did watch some of the the series. I never saw the the movies, but um, to Amos's point, then the Joker I grew up with would have, of course, been if not the syndicated, you know, Romero uh, Joker from the '60s TV series with Adam West. It was the, of course, the Tim Burton. Um, Jack Nicholson one, so. right? And then the the animated series sort of came after that series. Yeah, it was um, the uh, <clears throat> Tim Burton Joker is eighty nine, and yeah. the animated series started in probably ninety two or something sure. like that. Um, go ahead. Oh, one one other thing that I had been thinking about. You were talking about uh, Jokers that other people had been growing up with. I remember back when the Dark Knight came out, that my parents were sort of apprehensive about this new Joker, but not in like a it was going to corrupt my mind kind of way, but more in a, like, I miss when the Joker was like fun and like funny, like Jack Nicholson. And the more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me that the, the Jack Nicholson is like the ultimate boomer uh, Joker because like his whole character is that he just likes to show up and like fuck with other people and like yeah, throw he's, money he's around. Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like uh, that's interesting. Cause my mom saw, the Dark Knight Rises, or the Dark Knight, like, um, probably 
after the fact. Like, I watched that movie in the theater like three fucking times because mm-hmm. it was so good. I mean, it was just really good, even if it's reactionary in its ultimate message. Um, but she was like, b- before the fact, uh, before Zizek had started writing seriously about that Joker and WikiLeaks and stuff as like this, you know, liberatory dimension of whistleblowing. Um, she was like, he's right. She's like, I was agreeing with him. Right. Um, which is kind of, you know, and maybe that just speaks to my mom's like implicit leftism, but like, it's interesting that even that it was, it was sort of transparent, like, and you know, as much as like, I love the dark Knight rises too, obviously just, for the purposes of Bane, um, even the Robin character there had a moment of truth where the whole problem with the 2008 Dark Knight was at the end when it was like, he's not the hero we deserve, but he's a hero we need. And he's like lying to everybody to mm-hmm. sustain this like fascist social control that Zizek was really critical of. Then with like one line in the Dark Knight Rises, where Gordon's like, he got his hands in the muck. And then uh, Robin's like, or, you know, so that we don't have to. And he just looks at Gordon. He's like, your hands look pretty dirty from here. So, like, he can just penetrate right through it because he knows when people are trying to fuck him over because he's actually been on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the... I agree completely that that version of Batman is superior to all others. The animated series version. Um, oh, is there anything else? I, I can't remember right now, but if you guys have, I, I'm going to, I'm going to move transition to talking about Gigi Allen. And unless you guys have other thoughts, you want to No, that's, that's good with me, Joe. Uh, I guess uh, one thing that I want to say is that I hear that this Joker will not be connected to the Robert Pattinson Batman, which good. yeah makes make yeah good. That makes sense on a lot of levels. But I have you either of you folks seen the movie Good Time at all? I watched. Oh, no. that was rough. I mean, it was good. It was so fucking intense. I can't deal with people who are like developmentally disabled getting like treated poorly and that was going on right at the beginning so it just wasn't in the mood for it but it was uh it seemed really good yeah but feel free to just, talk about it well i i don't have too much to say and i might connect this later to uh i don't want to get into that right now but there's this other phoenix film called you were never really here that, oh yeah um, yeah well if you want to talk about been- if you want to talk about that go ahead well uh yeah sure so with with the robert pattinson batman uh good time connection all i was going to say is i would trust uh a pattinson project on the strength of that movie just because of how well it shows the uh i don't know it was the first time i'd seen a movie in a while that i felt like showed like the true american like gritty underground like all the shit that most people have to deal with okay um but then you were never really here i i feel that way about it too but i i went and saw that movie with a friend and both of us, when we left the theater, were like, holy fuck, like, what did we just see? Um, just because it touched on, it was very well made, but it also just touched on subject matter that doesn't normally get um, any kind of airtime in popular culture. Because that movie is about, like, a hitman with a heart of gold. He lives with his mom, and he kind of stumbles into some, like, Jeffrey Epstein, like, high-level human yeah. trafficking shit. And I went and looked at reviews because I was just I was confused why I hadn't heard more about that movie. I, I just thought it was phenomenal. And it seemed like a lot of the reviews had this take that it was like, well, 
you know, uh, a lot of the, you know, the crux of the plot with the human trafficking and stuff, that's, that's a, at the heart of a lot of the stuff, like the Pizzagate stuff that brought Hillary Clinton down in uh, 2016. And uh, I kind of had that in mind going into this Joker movie where I just felt like liberal, like coastal liberal commentators on film don't want to talk about actual political truth anymore. Mm -hmm. And that fits great with the Joker itself. I mean, that's practically the theme of the movie. I, I don't know. That's how I felt anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I When we were discussing that movie and you had brought it up, I had confused it with a fake documentary that Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix made, which was yeah. fucking incredible. So this is like the other side of the coin. So that side is like the social realism side of like just kind of a an ethical agent of if not chaos, then at least violence. So like what was interesting, yeah. the most interesting thing about, to me about you're not really here or there or whatever it is, is um, Joaquin had to get jacked and his body is not built for that. Like his muscles, it was the first time I'd seen somebody with a lot of muscle mass that just looked fucking weird, like really like deformed almost. Yeah. Um, I, I know that, I know that he's about my height and I'm a, I'm on the shortish side and I can't even imagine like, what that would be like to have that yeah. amount of muscle mass on my body. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It was really extreme. Like even his pecs looked deformed. Like they weren't even, it was crazy. I don't know what he, he might've just intentionally taken like a lot of bad steroids or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But the, so the other side of the coin is like the comedic dimension of, uh, do you know what that movie's called? Joe, I could Google it. I can't remember. Um, the Joaquin Phoenix one? Yeah, with Casey. I think it's I'm, I'm not there. I'm oh, not there. I'm, I'm, still, I'm, still, I'm still here. I'm still here. Oh. Okay, so <laughs> the movie, it's a, <laughs> he's doing <laughs> he's doing press for uh, this like kind of uh, borderline schlocky, like missing kid movie that's really kind of like overcooked. And so as a as performance art. Now, again, the, the film is staged like a real documentary. So supposedly he's actually going through this crazy mental breakdown, but he's doing like real press. Like he's going on fucking Jimmy Kimmel or whatever, doing interviews with sunglasses. on, not saying anything and uh, just acting super weird and spaced out. And then like at one point he just kind of like is becomes really manic and he's hanging out with Casey Affleck and he's like, he gets these hookers and cocaine and he's trying to like get Casey. He's like, come on, man, this is the life, man. This is what we're here for to do. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, I was, I'm sure I was crying laughing cause it was so spectacular. Um, but it was the same thing where he, he's able to summon, you know, and maybe it's just cause he's a Scorpio and it comes easy to him, but he's able to summon this really like unhinged, energy that you can't put your finger on in terms of like what is the what the fuck is going on here um so in some ways joaquin's perfect for this especially this joker in particular where he doesn't need to be funny in a in a normal way uh, or maybe isn't funny at all but can nevertheless ride all that awkwardness and uncomfortable um humiliation and degradation mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, those two those two movies really gave me confidence in his performance. Um, like long before I saw the movie, I just figured like Joaquin doesn't really sign on to like really shitty projects, mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking. And then like also the master uh, was like a huge oh, yeah. thing for me. I, I which that's that's a one of my favorite films, and uh, right. um, you can 
the amount of dedication that he put into that role, but also just like the level of like abject, um, almost like subhuman like degradation that he is um, portraying in that movie it w- is perfect for this role. But uh, you continue. A, that's a great point. Like, I mean, to me, The Master is far and away Paul Thomas Anderson's best movie. I mean, like orders of magnitude blows everything out of the water. Um, and it's probably to your point, like it's probably because of Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, it's also got <clears throat> fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams, but, um, yeah, that's true. Like that sheer insanity. Um, so well, I, I, Paul I would, Thomas Anderson, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson said that he considers the master to be his best film, even though the script doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. which the un, the unspoken thing there is that Joaquin carried the movie. Right. And I've actually, I've read the screenplay for that film and it's a disaster. Like if it had right. just filmed according to the way it had been written, it just didn't make any sense. Nothing connected to each other. Right. Cause um, Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson's a moron. That's why. Like he's a, <laughs> he's a masterful yeah. technical filmmaker, but he's, he's kind of idiot. a savant. Like I just feel like he, yeah, he, he stumbles upon really brilliant things, but <laughs> I think Inherent Vice showed that like he is not really that great of just taking a, a script on paper and, and making it work. Well, Because I understand, yeah, you go. Oh, I was just going to say that that was the other th- When you talked about the master, Inherent Vice is the same pairing of with uh, I'm still here and I'm not really there or whatever, in the sense that like he's playing this same like ridiculous uh, ethical figure of Thomas Pynchon's version of a LA detective. Mm-hmm. Um, like I rewatched inherent vice and I fucking absolutely loved it. Not as like a Paul. It, it doesn't feel at all like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Cause it's more of a straight comedy in a sense, but yeah. I feel like it's the, I still think though, like if you pair it with the master, you still get like, it's two sides of the same coin. It's like Joaquin can't be, he, he's, he can be one or the other, and that's not a fault of his. It just seems to be how it plays. So I think that's probably what makes Joker so powerful is he's precisely like short-circuiting between those two versions where on the one hand, he's trying to do – he's trying not to hurt anybody is kind of the idea, but then there's this growing like fury within him for a lot of obvious reasons like he was horrifically abused and his, his mother is like narcissistic and – I mean, he actually, that's what's interesting is all of the structural features of what makes an incel. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, and I've, he- I've heard people, I've heard incels talking about this online where the emotional incest that goes on between him and his mother, where she's manipulating him and lying to him and he's giving her sponge baths and it's all weird and gross and there aren't any boundaries. That's what some, you know, insightful incels point to is that it's not their fault that they're basement dwellers because they've been so abused and conned that they can't really get out of the situation that they're in. Um, and they're not saying, therefore, we should, you know, kill women or something, at least not the stuff I was reading. So maybe it's not full on incels, but um, I'm just saying, like, well, he he is actually the point is the reason the other reason it's leftist is he is actually fucking proletarian in every respect. Like he's uneducated. Nobody, nobody respects him at any level. And he's sort of caught in this, um, this primitive sort of power struggle with his mother, just because nobody's watching because Mm -hmm. social services doesn't give a fuck Mm -hmm. because, uh, she's somehow let out of Arkham to 
allowed to abuse him more and make him feel responsible and hide all her lies and all that shit. Oh, I don't know. I not really. I guess I would just say that like um I don't want to wave like a flag for incels at all. Uh but right. I will I will say that um and I, I I definitely want to stick more to like the text itself of this film, but uh I think part of what made this film so politically uncomfortable for a lot of people is it 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 really is like a display of of like the male abject and uh of the male abject as like a component of like the proletarian like um perspective on society and I think like people uh, there's plenty of that in indie film but there's not a whole lot of that in comic book movies at all and I think like maybe that's what people were objecting to is that these cultural materials comic book stuff should just be for when you want to go to the movies to like have fun or take somebody on a date or something um yeah right i think i mean probably there's an element of that i would just take it maybe a half step further and say to your point about coastal elites writing about movies this is who hillary clinton was calling a deplorable in 2016 and that's their queen so like which handed the election to trump because as we discussed on the show recently, um, it's not just that uh, Hillary, it's not just that like Hillary was a bad candidate. So some people went to Trump. It's that everybody in the Democratic base saw how they uh, fucked Bernie over and they were disgusted by it. And so they they went and fucked her over either by not participating in key states, voting for Trump or writing in Bernie People, two-time Obama voters, who are some of them black, um, they made sure Trump got elected as a you know a sort of violent protest in a social sense to the Hillary Clinton machine. The paradox or dialectical truth being, she would have been way fucking worse than him. We would have already been at war with Iran, maybe Russia, maybe Ukraine, etc. And so, like, it's I yeah I sh- so maybe I should qualify like. I'm saying the the conditions that can create an incel. I mean more just the basement dweller in general, like the general proletarian, uh, like you're saying, young man who, as Andrea Nagel points out, the reason these people get folded into right wing politics on the Internet is because when you're presented, you'd say you're a young, young white dude, you're 21 or whatever, you're maybe don't have many social prospects, even if you're middle class. You go on the Internet, half the Internet's telling you that you're have you have privilege you're a rapist you're a piece of shit um blah 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 the other half of the internet's telling you hey we understand you we hear your what you're saying we appreciate your concerns well the latter is probably the alt-right which one are you going to choose you're not going to fucking choose the social justice warrior side the liberal identity politics side because you're getting berated and harangued it doesn't make sense for you to choose that which is why it's so interesting that like after that Jordan Peterson Zizek debate, Zizek's plan worked, which his his plan was to appeal to, and he said this for a month leading up to it in interviews, he wanted to appeal to these Jordan Peterson followers mm-hmm. and just sell them on Bernie Sanders. Hey, if you really don't like all this social justice warrior shit, if you really want things to change and you really want dignity, support Bernie Sanders. And that's what happened on the internet. Even on Reddit, most of these Jordan Peterson guys were like, wow, that was fucking embarrassing. I'm done with them. So like the, and that's, that's sort of what's at stake in the film is like, if you get actual, 
and and maybe this is kind of what you're driving at joe if you actually get a film that empathizes with a figure like this you know a dejected basement dweller um that will that will change fundamentally just by staging it like that the relationship between those people and their own situation which is why this was not a mass shooter movie because it's not a fascist movie Mm -hmm. there's just nothing in it that suggests that like matt chrisman had said that uh, just to button it up matt chrisman had pointed out before the film even came out that like comic book movies are inherently right wing because they're full of these individual heroes. They're anti-political in the sense that politics is always this mass movement with all these tendencies and shit. The Joker stages precisely the anti-superhero movie in the sense that it stages exactly this political uprising that he cannot neither control nor maybe even desires or knows mm-hmm. that he wants. Intended. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he never does seem to uh, think of himself as, as a leader or, or relish it at all. Um, and... I was thinking about something that you had said in a prior episode and also something that Zizek had said um, just about kind of uh, Hegelianism, where uh, his wonder at what's going on outside when he's being when he's in the back of the police car at the end of the film um, is an expression of that that idea that like um, you you can't even imagine. what's possible you just have to act as if the impossible is possible um because there's no a lot of people i notice in the reviews and also just among the friends that i i went and saw this with um thought the 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 kind of uprising that follows him shooting the wall street guys and the trains was sort of far-fetched but i think that's like well within the the realms of a comic book movie as well oh yeah um yeah i don't know exactly well that was what I mean, I didn't read any of the reviews intentionally because I wanted to come in fresh to this uh, conversation. Yeah. Not that I wanted to read them anyway, because I'm sure they're mostly horrible. Oh, but, they are. <laughs> but what <laughs> what was so interesting, just, you know, I couldn't help but see like a million headlines. And they every it was all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. Like all the left wing writing on it was just like they were turning it into whatever crazy shit that they wanted to. Like it seemed like. Oh, this is the ultimate, you know, revolutionary treatise. This is the ultimate reactionary uh, bullshit. This is the ult- like it was just there was no consistency. There weren't mm-hmm. even camps. It was everybody had right. a different version of it, which to me just suggests, like Zizek has said, when you're getting attacked from all sides, you're doing something right. And so this is sort of like to your point about shooting Wall Street guys in a comic book. That's just like bread and butter stuff like Class war is not off limits in comic books. The way that they deal with resolving it is usually pretty reactionary. But um, you can have these villainous characters, obviously, who have political power. And that political power and corruption is part of the problem that is, you know, the superhero is trying to resolve one way or another. Um, Excuse me. So, like, what's uh, and we'll get into this in more specificity in a little bit, but like. That's why not only what I was talking about, it touched a nerve because it's going to crack 900 million and maybe a billion ultimately, but also because now in all these fucking revolutions, people are wearing the Joker mask Mm -hmm. like they get in Chile, in, Mm -hmm. you know, Lebanon, Mm -hmm. and probably it's going to continue as since we're there's what maybe 10 percent of the countries in the world are literally in a fucking revolution right now Um, (laughs) on the periphery. 
people are sort of acting out this, you know, quote unquote fantasy of the film because that's what's, it's just a sign from the future. That's where we're headed. Um, you know, if, especially if we don't get a Bernie presidency. Mm-hmm. So now I want to talk about this Gigi Allen movie. Um, have you yeah. seen it, Joe? So here's the thing is that I recall watching um, at least most of a Gigi Allen documentary like years ago. Um, but I don't know if it was Todd Phillips's. Does the Todd Phillips one open with just sort of footage of Gigi like tearing all his clothes off and covering himself in his own shit? Uh, I don't know if it's that's kind of the climax. That's sort of the dramatic okay. climax of the film. So maybe it's not yeah. the same one. Um, the, yeah. Well, it op- you might remember this. It opens with this quote about how Gigi Allen's such a great artist. And then it's revealed that the quote is from John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do recall that, actually. Okay, so yeah, it's probably the same yeah, so, movie. Okay, yeah, so I've seen it years ago. I can't speak to it, really, though. So I wrote a lot about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. I'll see how far I get. Um, but I think there's some interesting shit here. So uh, the film's called Hated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a subtitle that I don't remember. Um, 1993, directed by Todd Phillips. Same guy who directed Joker. So... <clears throat> G.G. Allen presaged all the exhibitionism, nihilism, violence, narcissism, voyeurism, comedy, transcendence, and the authoritarianism in response to him that is the miasma we live in now in the age of social media. With his acts of public defecation, self-sodomy with food objects, throwing feces on the crowd, rubbing his own feces on his face and genitals, the seemingly spontaneous, vicious, brutal violence, and the strange comic dimension of it all, even though the violence is as real as possible, it is impossible to ignore the direct parallel to our everyday experience of fighting each other for exposure and the psychological terror inflicted by both the medium of social media uh, on ourselves and the seemingly suicidal nature of our own participation in such a system of open cruelty and manipulation of our most base level levels of response to stimuli. The open admission uh, by Facebook co-founder Sean Parker that his invention is destroying the world is precisely the letter from the future that Gigi Allen sent us to borrow Walter Benjamin's formulation about the role of art in history. It is only now that we're able to properly decode the message, that message with any reasonable approximation of how truly disgusting and horrifying our daily lives could become with increasing austerity and neurological control. I hesitate to call this psychological for many reasons, but following Berardi, what we are pummeled with on a constant basis is a form of neurological torture, barraged with dopamine-based manipulations built into our system of social mediation. Namely, our reality has become a form of Facebook, not the other way around. At best, all withdrawal promises is peace at the price of further, further social isolation. Semblances themselves become inaccessible. Lest this comes across as a resolution that we submit to these systems of digital authoritarian control, my aim is first and foremost to describe this phenomena and simply point out that Gigi Allen had this right all along. So what specific link to Todd Phillips' current masterpiece of neoliberal exposition, Joker 2019, does this Gigi Allen documentary have? In a strange inversion of the role of masks in the emergence of liberation, or their semblances, personal and public, The Gigi documentary opens with a quote from the notorious real-life clown killer John Wayne Gacy, singing Gigi's praises. It is revealed later in the film that Gigi would visit Gacy in prison, and Gigi's friends speculated with reasonable certainty that what Gigi and Gacy discussed was tying up young girls. Though we should 
be obviously completely without illusion about the actual physical harm Gigi inflicted on the world in front of him, we're led to wonder what role Gigi saw himself playing regarding his relationship with Gacy. Namely, Gigi's friend had pointed out that Gacy himself would make his interlocutors talk about sex almost exclusively, of the scatological variety. So the question is, was Gigi humoring Gacy if they were in fact talking about young girls, or was this part and parcel of Gigi's own perversions? The film leaves this question unanswered, but what it retroactively injects with ambiguity is the degree to which Gigi Gigi was engaging in his public acts of violence, degradation, self-degradation, self-destruction, and exhibitionism for the benefit of the audience, or as he would have likely argued, the society itself. And again, to be perfectly clear, whether or not he was in fact talking about depravity at the level of Gacy for the purposes of humoring him or for his own gratification, it should be condemned on all ethical and moral grounds. Fuck that shit. It's disgusting and irredeemable. But that irredeemability seemed to be precisely at what Gigi was aiming at with, with every move. That being the case, one must begin to ask questions about what what public masochism as such, at such an extreme level has to do with the current capture of all social mediation by authoritarian tech giants, completely outside our oversight or control? The extremity of this masochism is, per- is perhaps novel in human history, at least at its scale. Gacy himself was a clown at children's birthday parties and had a seemingly normal external public image. For Gacy, the mask was a means of concealing a private evil and horror and debauchery and cruelty that strains the limits of perception. I'll leave it to the listener to look up the details of his murders, but to suffice it to say that, what he, that he was the monster in his own story. Joker 2019 seems to destabilize the short circuit between Gacy and Gigi Allen. While Gigi's onstage antics were, by any definition, violent and immoral, he had limits, and his fury had a clearly discernible aesthetic dimension that is undeniable as well as a comedic dimension that is as strong as our scorn for some of his acts, as uh, scorn might be for some of his acts. What, what's most unsettling about the character of Arthur Fleck, played by, by Joaquin Phoenix, is perhaps the distance between his uncontrollable laughter and the emotions underpinning it. This is explained as an involuntary response to presumably stress as a result of a head injury. But time and time again... But time and again, his desire for attention and to be able to make his way in the world is in tension with his underlying destructive tendencies. While this seems to not have uh, the character of masochism as such, it is clearly the primary tendency of his life. As Fleck, by a series of attacks on the streets of a shattered city, a wasteland of street gangs and slick-haired drunken Wall Street hyenas, and humiliations both public and private, morphs into a symbol for what's wrong with society and what our response should be, becomes a political figurehead, a position that he crucially denies, yet wears the same clown mask to avoid capture and to enter the temples of power that he wore when he killed the Wall Street dogs on a subway car to stop them from harassing a lone woman after he himself was being savagely beaten by them. It is only... Uh, when he gets a true public platform that he had previously only fantasized about, resulting from a bad stand-up comedy set that was filmed and handed over to the Johnny Carson figure in the world of the film, he was able, he was to be brought on and mocked. He uses his, this masochism that seems to be he that he he seems incapable of escaping, and turns that fury into a war on God. It is this berserker figurehead adorned in clown makeup which finally pierces the public order completely. After he murders the host live on air, riots break out in the streets and he is celebrated as a pauper who became king, cheered on by the mob as Gotham burns. 
Though this inverts Gacy's use of the clown mask, it, is, it in some sense reveals the truth of it, which is that private evil that is public in its scale, i.e. a serial killer terrorizing an entire city in Gacy's case, cannot function without a public mask of good humor and anonymity. And just to interject, I didn't write this, but Gacy was operating in Chicago, which is more of Gotham City than even New York itself. This is why Obama's good temper and seemingly refined demeanor is, a necessar is necessary to hide the authoritarian building of a state surveillance apparatus and drone warfare, as well as increasing unitary military power of the executive and prosecuting whistleblowers. To make the latter palatable, all the crimes, whereas Trump's G.G. Allen-like social media presence has real limits in terms of how far he'll go starting wars, i.e. he hasn't invaded Iran, Ukraine, North Korea, Russia, attacked Syria, much less than Obama, etc., in Joker, Fleck finds a way to use his fury, his war on God, even if by accident, to illuminate the contradictions of the society in a way that threatens to disrupt the neo-feudal economic order and concomitant street-level tribalism and social isolation and humiliation without identifying with the public image of fame, only identifying with the mask itself. Joker, unlike the Penguin from Tim Burton's Batman Returns 1992, isn't a fake populist figure, i.e. not a Trumpian figure who's simply using a narrative of victimization to opportunistically get a grip on power and hold on to it. Joker really is proletarian in the same way as everyone else who wears the mask. It is for this reason that Gotham burns when he assassinated an, an ideological sentinel live on television. Because those who determine the contours of culture control the limits of the sayable. When that process of limiting the sable is constrained to the point of silence, namely when the host attacks Fleck for playing the victim when Fleck is attempting to articulate a real contradiction, albeit in a mostly inarticulate fashion, the humiliation can't help but ultimately explode into violence. So Fleck isn't a leader so much as a particular example of a universal phenomenon, which is why the masochism he engages in can be broken out of why the film is ultimately hopeful and why the revolution spreading throughout the periphery of the West from Lebanon to Chile have begun donning the Joker mask in the weeks following the film's release. Because for all the fears of sparking incel violence and in spite of the reviews condemning the film for being somehow a right-wing rallying cry, the film is ultimately an articulation of deadlocks rather than a fascist screed. There is no redemption in the case of Fleck, only catharsis, and that catharsis also has limits. But the political process it initiates is beyond both beyond his control or even his desire and articulating deadlocks along these lines of staging a class war from the side of the proletarians is a decidedly left-wing move, which is why the film is attacked all the more from the liberal commentariat precisely because the target of liberal critique more than anything is always a threat of a left-wing eruption of emancipatory politics. But again, Joker's no leader. He is a vanishing, vanishing mediator, which is what makes him dangerous. By the end, he has instrumentalized himself for the purposes of the mask, and his initial suggestion of public suicide, meaning when he's practicing in his apartment, turns into a theory of the ideological apparatus itself. This self-instrumentalization is what we used to call militancy, back when we were allowed to think in those terms. But this rage at the political establishment is very real and very present, that I mentioned that poll about Americans being fighting mad, as it is repeated over and over again, the Kennedy quote that we should heed as it has become truer than ever, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. As our real concerns are more clearly laid out by Bernie's campaign and the alliance of left wing of the Democratic Party aligning behind him, if Bernie's not allowed to win, the political establishment may be starting a war they aren't prepared for. So that's what I got uh, about Gigi Allen. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? 
I saw the film too, but it was um, it's been a while. Much like much like Joe, maybe Joe, maybe more recently. It was just a couple years ago, but um, I don't remember a whole lot other than thinking it was. Um, you know, we were talking off air. I think Amos, it was. I mean, it was really, it was really impressive and horrifying in some ways, but also it was it was really good and it was really compelling in terms of what this this figure, this Gigi Allen figure, was trying to do as a performer. Insofar as he seemed to be trying to goad. Uh, an audience into abusing him as the figure, right? He was trying to not humiliate himself for the purposes of self-abuse and just sort of engage an audience to sort of react, I guess. And I found that interesting at the sort of punk rock level and so on. But Joe. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I, I don't have much of a reaction to that because I think it's pretty spot on, but it did. Uh, I, I had some, some bits pulled from a couple essays you sent me in preparation for this, and it reminds me of this bit from Zizek's um, essay on ambiguity of the masochist social link. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, uh, when we are subjected to a power mechanism, this subjection is always and by definition sustained by some libidinal investment. The subjection itself generates a surplus enjoyment of its own. This subjection is embodied in a network of material bodily practices, and for this reason, we cannot get rid of our subjection through a merely intellectual reflection. Our liberation has to be staged in some kind of bodily performance, and furthermore, this performance has to be of an apparently masochistic nature. It has to stage the painful process of hitting back at oneself. Right. And uh, I guess I was just kind of curious. I, I think I know what you we're seeing in connection between this essay and the film, but um, I don't know. I, I guess I would want you to expand on that maybe. Sure. So um, yeah, I mean, you picked out the, I mean, you got the point like the, <clears throat> so also in that essay, I don't have the quotes pulled, but he, one of the things Zizek focuses on is, well, so two things are extremely relevant. One is like to that point that you just read, um, he gives an example of, 20th century poet is it Sylvia Plath I believe who was um she had written about how like being abused by her father she could never be sure how much yeah. was it yeah it was Plath okay. yeah uh she could never be sure exactly how much of like how much enjoyment she was getting out of it and Zizek's point with the quote that you pulled is that you can never figure that out like and she compared her, she was criticized for comparing herself to a Holocaust victim, but her point was not that her suffering was the same, only that the structure of the social relation was the same. And, um, yeah, I, I remember that bit. And, uh, I, I just wanted to throw this in there just because I failed to write this down in my notes. Um, uh, if you remember, uh, there's this book called towards a new manifesto, it's Adorno and Horkheimer, mm -hmm. um, who I'm not like. Uh, I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about Adorno uh, relative to other people, but he, he has this line in there where he says something along the lines of like, all the work that we do today is the same as the work we did in the camps, hmm. which is a very, very striking line. But um, the, 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 the resemblance between like uh, the structural uh, um, sort of nature of, of, what was imposed on people in the camps is not as far away from kind of modern neoliberal capitalist practices as people would want you to assume. Right. But I don't know how far I want to go down that line necessarily. Well, yeah. I get, I understand your hesitation. I would just say to that point, like 
that was just it, so uh and this point has been made many times but i think what you're the way you're bringing up is sheds perhaps new light the that um so the liberal idea is okay well we saw the horrors of modernity in the nazi experiment and um so we figured out how to stop it but many have pointed out that's not what happened what happened was that was a model for how to do it and then everybody else just globalized it in different ways so we could obviously take the example of the congo where 10 million people were killed without the west blinking or even knowing or you know paying attention to it mm -hmm. um and so like i would say in the same way that hitler took his model for how to do camps from the american indian reservations and th those systems of uh social brutality and control and ideological um torture etc physical torture um that that method of social control within Nazi Germany was sort of turned into a psychological project by neoliberalism post facto. So like, you know, taking a, who's that guy, Adam Phillips or whatever, the century itself guy, mm -hmm. um, the four hour documentary about how Freud's ideas were instrumentalized by some dark actors in the American PR industry to make the best propaganda of all time, which again, Hitler was borrowing from U.S. propaganda methods. He said we had it down the best. Hitler had a Hitler had a portrait of of who in the Eagle's Nest? Who was his fucking hero? Henry Ford. So, <clears throat> uh, it's important to note that like whatever whatever parallels we see with what Hitler was doing socially, um, politically those parallels by and large, including the eugenicist project itself can all be traced back to 19th or early 20th century American, uh, cultural and political practices. And it albeit in an exaggerated form in, in some respects. So like, <clears throat> I think we are, we are subjected at the very least to a, f a profound and pervasive humiliation as economic subjects, whether or not that, is at the level of uh, concentration camp victims or targets or whatever, you know, I, I wouldn't go that far necessarily either, but we can see the, the parallel in terms of the structure of abuse. And so like, I think to clarify for the listener who hasn't read the essay, um, the example Zizek uses as a way out of this, like, why do you need to break physically with this system of control? Why can it not happen? intellectually and he, he pins that on the desire structure or the gratification the jouissance the surplus enjoyment gained even from being harmed uh the way out of this the example he uses is the scene in fight club where jack um goes and tries to extort uh paychecks from his boss at the at the actuary firm that he works at and at first the the boss is like calling him a little shit and like almost laughing in his face. And so Jack's response is to not attack the boss, but to attack himself. And he brutally beats himself up bloody to the point of almost killing himself when, and he's just begging the boss. He's like, just give me the paychecks and you'll never have to deal with me again. And then he had already called security, but Jack had used his own, the, he had used the structure of uh, violence as a means to sort of pin on the boss this 
violence that he himself staged, which then he had the boss doing whatever he wanted. And the, the scene is, it's pretty amazing the way Fincher stages it because immediately after he leaves the office with his computer and, you know, paychecks now that are going to come without him showing up for work, he's whistling as he's walking down the hall, beaten and bloody, his clothes torn up. And so like, and, and his comment is we now had corporate sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And so the, he doesn't escape from, I think that the, the sort of shocking thing about fight club, even though it's become kind of a meme about, Oh, this is what incels like, or this is fascist somehow. Again, it's another thing that scares liberals. Um, because it's actually leftist is he doesn't reject the society as such. He says, or he, he fully invests himself in the reality of the power relation and plays the system at itself better than the system is able to cope with. And so like, this is why, and I was sort of alluding to that in the, what I wrote, but like, this is why the Joker, um, why assassinating the ideological sentinel live on television ex- uh, causes social violence to explode and explode in the social order to collapse at some level ideologically is because he's used his own humiliation as a he's weaponized it against mm-hmm. the system itself and in this you know even at a like psychological level Lacan was very critical of masochists in in a clinical setting because they're the most selfish, like demanding, like sexual partners. <laughs> so like the sadist is not demanding and, and the sadist and masochist, I know they're paired, but as Zizek points out, they are not symmetrical. Like they don't, their desires may complete one another, but they are not after the same thing. They're not on the same page. Um, but the, but it makes sense. Like if you're a masochist, you got somebody, okay, we got to tie him up. Now we got to beat him and electrocute him. We got to like, you know, cut him or whatever, do all this. It's so much work for the sadist. That's why they pay right. dominatrixes right. because it's a lot of fucking work. It's uh, labor. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, but you see even there, like you're already kind of subverting the power relationship just by going further than they're willing to go. The other example, I don't know if Zizek uses it in the, in that essay, but he uses it in uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema. The, Bertolucci film 1900 which he doesn't like very much there's a scene where the farmers are sort of arguing with the landlord and the landlord's demanding basically he's making it impossible for them to survive and so one of the farmers cuts his own ear off and tries to hand it to the landlord and the landlord it gets terrified and runs away it's because if you're willing to go further than the system oppressing you and oppressing yourself you can't be controlled um and so like <clears throat> That that's sort of like the general contours of why I was interested in that essay uh, regarding Joker is because like that does seem to be the structure of what's happening, you know, even if Phillips isn't totally conscious of that. Yeah. And, and to speak to because um, part of what what the essay is getting at uh, seems to be like there's a necessity to the the bodily performance of your of your uh kind of abjection Mm -hmm. and uh what i thought was good in the movie is that he has no preemptive like he has no plans to shoot uh robert de niro when he goes on tv but it it occurs to him and the other thing about that scene that's interesting is he adopts this 
different affectation that doesn't appear much in the other film. Like he keeps calling him like Murray, which was maybe the one the one other thing in the movie that like cracked me up. Mm-hmm. But um, and and maybe that's the the one flash in the movie of like a sort of more traditional Joker persona persona kind of shining forth. But uh, that was part of what was so striking about that that scene is it it came across as like very authentic. But um, even though the the dialogue on paper, you know, where he makes the joke about like. Uh, what do you you know take or what do you get when uh you take a, a mentally ill loner and a society that treats him like trash like that's very hackneyed on paper but uh, something about phoenix's performance like really uh brought it across well and uh it's interesting to hear people quoting it just because it's not something that comes across as especially original or anything like that right but, yeah well, well there's sort of a dialectical relationship if you will between that and the we live in a society meme mm-hmm. are you familiar with yeah. that, joe okay oh i'm very familiar okay yeah, yeah. I, I don't know I, i'm only on facebook <laughs> so i'm not on twitter or anything i don't i just don't know how it plays but it's it's wonderful and i've been you know um beating the dead horse about it for years because it's so fucking funny um but like yeah, obviously same here <laughs> but like obviously <laughs> uh and for the dear listener if you're on facebook the the tag page we live in a joker movie that is my creation so please go like that um but uh you know there were all these pro supposed like petitions and calls for this joker movie to contain the phrase we live in a society and that that was you know where it landed obviously in the film um yeah but i agreed it i agree that like there's nothing terribly insightful about the statement itself but it's it's the fact that like and that's kind of what I was trying to get at in what I wrote there in part was like the fact that he, he's basically inarticulate. Like that's his mm-hmm. whole problem and comedy. That's his problem on the show. That's his problem talking to even his fantasies of women. That's his problem talking to Thomas Wayne, um, that he can't articulate himself, but he's still right. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the one moment where out of rage, he's more articulate it kind of bursts through and then is followed immediately by this brutal violence. I think that's where its power or potency lies. It's he's turning that like it, because it is, even though the the outburst is directed at Robert De Niro, it's masochistic precisely in the sense that he knows that's a nihilistic move. You kill somebody on live on TV, you're not going to get out of that crime. Um, And therefore, you know, sparks a political uprising, or what have you. Well, I don't know if you want to transition to any of the other essays you'd asked uh, Joe to look at, but there was another Zizek one which I had read, uh, read today that's um, similar to this. Or I mean, I mean, it's along the same lines. I suppose is the one that Joe has been referencing, um, and that's the only one of the several I read. But I did find, I did find it compelling that in that essay Zizek, and he's ultimately talking about Haiti by the end, and the whole uh, the theme of the thing is divine violence and and so on. Uh, and he ultimately goes so far as to say when you have these. I'm quoting Judith Butler, but these, quote, abject subjects who are, you know, folks like um, Arthur Fleck, who have been sort of taken out of the equation when it comes to the political economy of the, quote, society or non-society, they almost have no, I I mean, they are um, fully justified, I suppose, in chopping out and or reacting in physical ways to the point we're getting at. Correct. Um, And then we see, again, we see that happening in this film in, I think, a way that's staged as fully, again, I hope this 
doesn't come across as you know, too over the top, but as fully legitimate mm-hmm. that violence against his mother, uh, against uh, Murray Franklin, against I guess I guess it's not Arthur Fleck who does in Thomas Wayne, but I mean that sort of the same sort of uh, structure which is in play there for the that mob at that time, right? Um, and, and it makes sense, and it doesn't seem immoral, I guess, which was Zizek's point too. Yeah, I, and I think that's a that's a crucial point, and I'll read part of that essay because sure. that was exactly why I was asking you guys to look at it. Um, but it's what was almost comforting to me about the film by the end was like, like it was staged in such a way that like he had engaged in so much brutal violence that you weren't worried about whether or not he was a the good guy. Mm-hmm. He's not the good guy, right? Um, we may agree with his impulses and we may think he's justified in some ways, but we can't, we can't deny the interpersonal violence, mm-hmm. nor should we. And so like, I, the other thing I thought of, um, about this film is again, related to how, uh, a scene in Zizek's Perverse Guide to Cinema, where he's talking about Psycho, the Hitchcock version, where it's staged sort of as an architectural problem. You have you have the the social mask of uh, this sort of well-meaning son uh, in the modern hotel, and then behind that you have this gothic house, nineteenth uh, century, where he's where we find out at the end he's cross-dressing as his mother. He's the mask of his mother, who has already died and her and has been dead so long. Her skeleton is in the basement, um, and I mean, I it's it's pretty obvious that a lot of what Fleck is doing is like directly stolen from psycho which is that's great fine um but it's that that short circuit between that public the two versions of the public mask oh i'm a i'm my mother's doting son she's in the house you know whatever but he's haunted by her all the time Mm -hmm. and then we find out that he's actually he's embodying her to sustain his own fantasy um at at a similar level and so like the I thought that one of the most radical elements of the film was precisely that he killed his mother. Like, we don't have any problem going all the way back to Oedipus killing fathers in art. That's just par for the course in patriarchy. Right. But killing your mother, I don't think I, I don't know if I've ever even seen that. Like, I'm sure it's happened, but it seemed to me that that was what was. And there's just Zizek talked about like the maternal, the revenge of the maternal in film is always this very like title kind of like everything sort of unravels um whereas you know this isn't Zizek this is me when you kill your father you take his place in the throne generally um you become the patriarch and so oh go ahead oh oh I actually thought the proximity of um because it's right after he uh no maybe I got this wrong but like um maybe it, it still works like the the whole Gary Glitter like dancing down the stairs thing, uh, I think that would only that scene is only as effective as it is because of the fact that he killed his mother before that scene. Mm-hmm. At least I feel that way. Um, I can't say exactly why, but like tonally, it just wouldn't have worked before he had just done something uh, that unspeakable or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it it also it happened. It was after that, but it was also right after he killed that clown in his apartment oh, right and then yeah. let, let yeah. the let the midget go because the midget had been nice to him um but 
yeah, I think the re like what seemed liberating about that was more that like he didn't he no longer had to deal with the gaslighting of his mother about who Thomas Wayne was and who his father was because he himself had gone further and looked it up and tried to, uh, you know, sort of accosted Thomas Wayne and or at least confronted him and then, you know, found out the truth. But the but obviously this didn't let Thomas Wayne off the hook because he. I mean, and I know this came before in the film, but I, uh, the more unsettling confrontation with Wayne was when Fleck was talking, to, was doing magic for Bruce Wayne through the gate. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I forgot to ask, but I was going to ask somebody from Chicago what the, where the rich people live in the outskirts of town, because what, what's always sort of fascinated me about the Batman universe, the brilliance of what they've done is they made something that doesn't exist. You don't have these huge fucking British looking estates in the U S yet it's supposedly in this city in the U S. And so what that says to me is it's not just inconsistent with the fact that like they have modern technology. It's precisely the fact that it is a Dickensian world. It is a gilded monarchy. That's like barely modern. And it's just pointing to it's exacerbating the fact that we live in a form of neo-feudalism. So when you have the literal gates of the castle right. that Fleck is trying to pierce, at least nominally, um, try to get in Bruce Wayne's head, the what's clear about that, I think, is and then they did the brilliant move of twisting the whole Joker killed Thomas Wayne to now just one of the millions of jokers right. killed him as a form of social violence, not even as just petty crime as, as such. Um, I think like, and this, this gets more into the, the Zizek stuff where he's talking about the modern yeah, Haitian the, revolution. Um, well, yeah, like he, he says, uh, I have the quote pulled up um, where he says, uh, one should not be afraid here to draw a radical conclusion concerning the figure of the leader. Democracy as a rule cannot reach uh, beyond the pragmatic utilitarian inertia. It cannot suspend the logic of servicing the goods. Consequently, in the same way, there is no self-analysis since, this, since the analytic change can only occur through the transferential relationship to the external figure of the analyst. A leader is necessary to trigger the enthusiasm for a cause, to bring about the radical change of the subjective position of his followers, and to trans transubstantiate their identity and that's pretty clearly on display when the 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 mass man uh murders thomas wayne in the alleyway right i think yeah, yeah exactly they've they identify with the mask like that's where so zizek was on chapo and they asked him about the joker and he said he said he hadn't seen it but you know if if it's as he understands it from reviews like he doesn't like it because it superhero movies shouldn't have backstories like it should just be like that's reactionary and shit and i totally take his point i generally agree with that like and that's why he liked the joker from nolan's film because every version of the backstory he gave was different and it was clearly that it didn't matter and then he gave the example of he like zizek likes more like in i don't know if it was one of the hannibal films or one of the books but they asked him, you know, were you traumatized? How did you become this? He's like, no, no, no. I happened to the world, not the other way around. Um, and I, and, and so Zizek's like the mask, the Jim Carrey movies better because the mask obviously has all the power. You put the mask on, you become somebody else. I think that the, the, this film achieves the same thing. It, the backstory is there, but it's not important. 
by the end, what's important is that transubstantiation, that transferential relationship that you just quoted. Um, and like to that point, to kind of like loop it back to uh, the masochism, I want to read, well, if you have a response, or do you have a response? To um, any of this, I'm just, yeah, no, quote. just, um, I think, I, so I don't know if you're still thinking about the, the Gigi Allen stuff in that film, but I was, I'm just remembering now that I, I used a lot of, I used a lot of that in this, in a, you know, something I'd written a long time ago about punk rock. Right. And so it, it was clear to, to me and a lot of maybe other, uh, critics or interpreters too, that that whole entire early punk thing was just a sort of what, you know, where they got their power from was that sort of self-debasing stuff, right? And, you know, it's, it's long before Gigi Allen, and that's why in some ways I wasn't as interested in, in Gigi or that film as I maybe could have been, or it should be now given the, given the Joker, but, you know, we saw Iggy Pop doing that sort of thing, and that's and I totally agree with that as a sort of performative or transubstantiating move, too, is to, again, if the political economy around us is humiliating us and torturing us, well, let's torture ourselves even further, and let's do it on a stage for everyone to see and sort of... Um, create an, an event out of this um, and just watch watch how people respond. Right. And that was always the most interesting part of that punk and post-punk thing to me. Yeah. Well, to take that point, like let's let's restrict it to the Midwest punk, sure. um, which is maybe the more more politically progressive punk anyway uh, in the U.S. Um, both Gigi Allen and Iggy Pop had ties. They were mm -hmm. Michigan people, or right. at least uh, they, that's where they were doing some of their shit. And I had asked our friend. Uh, who lives in Michigan, if he knew any of the people involved with all the riots in uh, 68, you know, because Detroit was, number one, a huge site of black radical organizing, labor militancy, you know, prior to the 68 and probably beyond to some degree, but also like the uh, the social unrest was fucking massive. And he said that uh, he talked to somebody and, it, he was like, that wasn't, those were, that was not a race riot. Those were fucking race wars. Like mm -hmm. people were knife fighting in the streets. Um, and so I think it's, it's extremely relevant that now Gigi Allen came along after the fact, but mm -hmm. that social milieu, which then produced Eminem who, you know, love him or leave him. Mm -hmm. He's, I mean, and this is Drake's approximation he's the greatest rapper of all time that's not me saying that that's drake saying that okay we could argue about that but he obviously had a huge fucking impact and it was extremely divisive in in various ways for for lots of different reasons but like one could posit that you know iggy pop doesn't emerge except in that milieu mm -hmm. of like total like self-annihilation of a society as mm -hmm. the result of all this like emerging neoliberal capitalist bullshit just trying to destroy labor unions and the, the manufacturing sector. So when you destroy the, again, when you bomb out the city, like I think we should, we should be fully aware that like the early eighties um, where in the Bronx where Joker is staged. Like if you see footage from that, it looks like fucking Beirut. It like does. it is the buildings look bombed out. Um, and that's, you know, what hip hop emerged out of mm -hmm. as well. And not to go, you know, on all these lines, but I'm just saying like, uh, I, you know, do you, can you even get like, do you, do you end up with Gigi Allen? Do you end up with Iggy Pop without the social, do you end up with the Sex Pistols without the economy collapsing right. and neoliberalism? I don't think you do. Like, 
because we should probably, be, you know, and I, people have probably done this in a sort of subtle way, but I hadn't really thought of it. We should be pairing Johnny Rotten with Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Zizek's argued convincingly that what we the left needs is a Margaret Thatcher or a Trump to um, basically unify opposition to the system and play all the dirty tricks in order to change things. Uh, the Joker sort of a proto example of that mm -hmm. since he himself does not see himself as a political figure. But like if we take Aristide as the example uh, in Haiti, I'll just read some of the, what Zizek wrote. Uh, so back to Haiti. The Lavalas struggle, Lavalas is uh, Aristide's party, is exemplary of a principled heroism and the limitations of what can be done today. This was written in 2010. It didn't withdraw into the inner DCs of state power and, quote, resist from there. It heroically assumes state power, well aware that they are taking power in the most unfavorable circumstances when all the trends of capitalist, quote, modernization and, quote, structural readjustments, but also of the postmodern left were against them. Where was Negri's voice, otherwise celebrating Lula's rule in Brazil, constrained by the measures imposed by the U.S. and IMF that were destined to enact a, quote, necessary structural readjustments, Aristide combined a politics of small and precise pragmatic measures, building schools and hospitals, creating infrastructure, raising minimal wages, and occasional acts of popular violence, reacting to military gangs. The single most controversial thing about Aristide, which earned him comparisons with uh, Sendero Luminoso or Pol Pot is his occasional condoning of uh, Père Lebrun, a form of popular self-defense, quote, necklacing, killing a police assassin or informer with a burning tire. The name ironically refers to a local tire dealer. Later, the term stood for all forms of popular violence. In a speech on August 4th, 1991, he advised an enthusiastic crowd to remember, quote, when to use it and when, where to use it, end quote. Liberals immediately drew the parallel between Chimera's, the Lavalas popular self-defense units, and Tonton Makuts, the notorious murderous gangs of the Duvalier dictatorship. Their preferred strategy is always the equating of leftist and rightist, quote, fundamentalists, so that, as with Simon Critchley, Al-Qaeda becomes a new reincarnation of the Leninist party, etc. Asked about Chimera's, Aristide said, the very word says it all. Chimera's are people who are impoverished, who live in a state of profound insecurity and chronic unemployment. They are the victims of structural injustice, of systemic social violence. It's not surprising that they should confront those who have always benefited from the same social violence, end quote. These desperate acts of popular, uh, of violent popular self-defense were examples of what Benjamin called, quote, divine violence, end quote. They are to be located, quote, beyond good and evil, end quote, in a kind of politico-religious suspension of the ethical, Although we are dealing with what, to an ordinary moral consciousness, cannot but appear as, quote, a moral act of killing, one has no right to condemn them. Since they replied to years, centuries even, of systemic state and economic violence and exploitation. Jean Emery made this very point, referring to Franz Fanon, quote, I was in my body and nothing else, in hunger, in the blow that I suffered, in the blow that I dealt. My body, debilitated and crusted with filth, was my calamity. My body, when it tends to strike, was my physical and metaphysical dignity. In situations like mine, physical violence is the sole means for restoring a disjointed personality. In the punch, I was myself, for myself and for my opponent. What I read, what I later read in Franz Fanon's, the... Uh, this is the French version, so I'll just say the wretched of the earth in a theoretical analysis of behavior of colonized peoples. 
I anticipated back then when I gave concrete form to my dignity by punching a human face, end quote. And the same point was made by none other than Hegel. When Hegel <laughs> emphasizes how society, the existing excuse me, social order, is the ultimate space in which the subject finds his substantial content and recognition, i.e. how subjective freedom can actualize itself only in the rationality of the universal ethical order, the implied, although not explicitly stated, obverse is that those who do not find this recognition also have the right to rebel. If a class of people is systemically, uh, excuse me, systematically deprived of their rights, of their very dignity as persons, they are e ipso, eo ipso also released from their duties toward the social order. Because this order is no longer their ethical substance, or to quote Robin Wood, Quote, when a social order fails to actualize its own ethical principles, that amounts to the self-destruction of those principles, end quote. What is fully justified in pointing out how the dismissive tone of Hegel's statements about the, quote, rabble should not blind us to the basic fact that he considered their rebellion rationally fully justified. The, quote, rabble is a class of people to whom systematically, not just in a contingent way, recognition by the ethical substance is denied. So they also do not owe anything to the society, are dispensed of any duties toward it. As is well known, this is the starting point of the Marxian analysis. The, quote, proletariat designates such a, quote, irrational element to the, quote, rational social totality. It is an accountable, quote, part and no part, end quote. The element systemically generated by it and simultaneously denied the basic rights that define this totality. So... <clears throat> If we're following here, basically, the idea is that if for fully rational, justified, ethical reasons, if if people are systemically excluded from the uh, benefits of the society, what is promised to them by the society, they have no duty to abide by what the society promises. I think this is the significant point. This is sort of what separates the wheat from the chaff in terms of leftists not just on the question of violence, but on the question of what it is that the society owes us precisely. So what is the civil war staged in the Democratic Party look like? The question of Medicare for all, the question of interventionist wars, the question of free college. The centrists will tell us we cannot ask for these things because these things are our responsibility. The, you know, the, the progressive end, the quote left wing, Sanders, AOC, Tulsi, we don't need to argue about that, but Ilhan Omar, um, <laughs> those those elements are saying, no, this is precisely what the society promises us, and we don't have to apologize for that. In fact, we don't have to obey the rules of the society insofar as these things are not fulfilled. Um, that's why it's so fucking dangerous. That's why Hillary Clinton comes out of her fucking dragon's lair to attack Tulsi Gabbard, somebody most people don't even know her fucking name, for being a Russian asset, and Jill Stein for being a Russian asset. Why? Because in Jill Stein's case, and she's right, the Green Party, as much as it's an electoral failure, set the agenda that now the, the left wing of the Democratic Party is advocating for. They're the ones who came up with free college. They're the ones who came up with uh, Medicare for all originally. They're the ones who came up with the Green New Deal. And uh, that I'm, that's not me endorsing the Green Party's positions f fully. My main concern, I agree with all that, except that they're anti-nuclear, but that's another conversation. The point is, um, 
it really is a fucking threat, like Jimmy Dore keeps saying, to tell the truth in public. That really does threaten the power structure. And the proof of that is the reaction to it. So, you know, Zizek made a similar point to the points being made here about the right to rebel regarding the Kurds. So in some twisted, you know, Hegelian move of history, now the fucking Republicans are the Kurds' best friends. Mm -hmm. Are the Republicans communist? I mean, is this where we are? I don't know what to say anymore. Like mm -hmm. the Kurds are, as Zizek points out in his recent article, perhaps the only angels in the Middle East. They are the ones who are secular and progressive and modern and more feminist than us in the, the way their society is structured. And the left has decided that because they accept air support and logistical support from the U.S., that they should be thrown to the fucking wolves. Well, I'm sorry, but... Since when does accepting military aid mean that they should be gassed by Erdogan and have kids lit on fire? Like, it's fucking, it's disgusting and despicable. And that's why, when I say the, the wheat from the chaff on the left, if you're a real leftist, you can pierce through all that ideological compromise and see that they had no fucking choice. What were they supposed to do? So, like Zizek said, sacrifice themselves on the, on the altar of anti-imperialism for the benefit of Western leftists? and their supposed consistency of uh, ethical values, fuck them. Unless you're facing that sort of terror and you're in a militant struggle yourself, you have no right to speak about what the fucking Kurds do or do not do in terms of accepting support. When we, the West, wrote these fake maps that fucked the Kurds out of their own state, which they have every right to. I think I just heard an argument for... Um the democratic centrists being basically Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hillary Clinton's fucking Bruce Wayne. Right. To, to, to backpedal a bit, although I, I definitely want more uh, anger about what's happened to the Kurds in the past few weeks here. Oh, you're going to uh, get it. <laughs> uh, I was really, I was really shocked at like, yeah, Hillary came out with that tweet saying, you know, uh, that Tulsi was a, a Russian asset. And, Thing is, I I know that the centrists don't like Tulsi, but on the on the other hand, she's so she seems to be like the candidate that they should want. Not not in terms of policy, but you know, in in terms of like their stupid kind of like corporatist identity politic outlook. I mean, she's right. Yeah, minority. She's she's a vet. She's a veteran. Um, she's not especially far left economically. Mm -hmm. um, it's more for just foreign policy ideas, and that that tweet from Clinton came across as like n maybe not scared, but just it it reeked of desperation. Like I was just really surprised that she that nobody you know stopped her from from hitting enter on that or whatever. Right. It just seemed like really unprofessional, and the fact that she's still out making public statements of any mm -hmm. kind uh, in in 2019 is embarrassing anyway. Mm -hmm. But right. Anyway, uh, and also, I was very heartened by the fact that Bernie Sanders set aside any differences between himself and Tulsi and just came out and said, like, uh, shut the fuck up. She's not a Russian asset. Right. Uh, it's yeah. fucking insane. Uh, you're right, though. Tulsi, sh that's an excellent fucking point. Tulsi should be the darling of the establishment at the level of identity politics, which is a, a point I've made on the show before. What is the fucking identity politics argument for Joe Biden? the greasiest, whitest, richest dude to ever like set foot in the Democratic Party. I mean, 
you know, po- politically, the Kennedys were obviously to the left of Joe Biden in at least certain ways. But um, as far as like appearing to have any moral compass, Joe Biden well, does not pass the smell test. He worked at a pool with some black that's people. That's right. One time. <laughs> his buddies with corn pop. I mean, the, first <laughs> yeah. of all, it, it's unfortunate that they accepted his compromise because if they'd slit his fucking throat, we wouldn't have to deal with him. <laughs> They put a rusty straight razor in him. Yeah, if they wouldn't have necklace necklace that motherfucker, we wouldn't have to deal with him. But hey, I'm, don't worry, I'm not advocating violence against Joe Biden. I would never do that. Um, so, uh, uh, getting back to oh yeah, you, oh so so yeah, in your example, like to Brian's point, if Hillary Clinton's Bruce Wayne, Tulsi's fucking Robin, mm-hmm. and that's why mm-hmm. uh, she's such a threat because. Like you can't tell the fucking truth, and this this gives the um, this gives lie to the uh, stupid reactionary anarchist quip that I've rallied against before. That uh, you know, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. Well, they're making it illegal, as Matt Chrisman on Chapo points out. So it must be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think we should just extrapolate this to the entire democratic field. If, if voting and reformism are not a part of revolutionary struggle, which they are, as Lenin teaches us, uh, but if they're not, then why wouldn't they? Why do they have to steal the election from Bernie? It wouldn't matter. Why do they have to silence Tulsi Gabbard? It wouldn't matter. Why do they have to make goddamn sure that Mike Gravel gets nowhere near the debate mm-hmm. stage? It wouldn't matter, right. except that it does. And so, like... This is, you know, and why is Assange the most dangerous person in the world to these people? For the same reason, I I made the argument in 2011 to someone. If you have somebody like Aristide or Assange, people who don't care if they live or die, and they're committed revolutionaries, they cannot be stopped. And that's why they're dangerous. Aristide, there were many, many assassination attempts on Aristide well before he came to power. Just when he was a priest preaching this glorious Marxist doctrine of rising up and overthrowing the fucking Western powers, this liberation theology stuff. Um, It is, this is what as leftists we have to keep in mind and not lose nerves about more than anything, whatever the fuck they're trying to silence at a, at, um, at a reformist level is precisely what we should be attacking harder than ever. Um, The, and like so the craziest i mean these are just absolutely mind-blowing attacks on tulsi that are coming from the left now and i'm not talking about the liberal hillary clinton russian agent shit i'm saying the people who are like tulsi's bad news because she supported hindu nationalism she she tried to rehabilitate modi i agree we should be critical of those things but who the fuck else is talking about getting out of these wars bernie isn't not at that level who the fuck else was willing to go to war with the Democratic Party internally in 2016. Literally nobody but Tulsi, and she got fired for it. Um, when she uh, when she called out Kamala's uh, marijuana bullshit, um, the only other moment I can remember of just just I don't know like excitement at like a political debate was when Trump called out the Bush family for 9/11. That was like the last time I felt that like shocked and surprised at something um, in a mainstream political kind of conversation. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, on this podcast, we are Yang Gang to the bone. 
Yang as VP. You need Bernie. $1,000. Bernie is president. Yang is VP. But uh, <laughs> that doesn't negate the fact that Tulsi is vital in this debate, you know, in this field as the left wing, as the former like anti-war dimension of the left that seems to have fucking evaporated. Um, the <clears throat> And I, I mean we don't need to continue down this path. It's just shocking to me that like you have, and, and then they're like, well, David Duke uh, and like Rand Paul support Tulsi. Well, why do they, <laughs> why, why do fucking white supremacists support her? Cause she's not pro Israel. Not before any, like that's something the left used to agree on it, Back in my day, the left gave a fuck about the Palestinians. Where did that go? So the fact that David Duke has like inconsistent positions, we're supposed to all we have to reject Tulsi because he pissed you off. Like, yeah, fuck David Duke. I don't support David Duke. Is that her fault? So she she stopped supporting Palestinians because David Duke gets behind her. Like, this is yeah, we, well, we are we are at fever pitch of like insanity to the point where I can't even sort out like they are spewing CIA propaganda at the level that I never yeah. thought would have been possible. It, well, exactly. Like, I don't, I don't want to stray too far into Infowars territory here, but I, I remember, I, <laughs> I remember ten years ago, it was not like considered a controversial thing to say that David Duke is fucking controlled opposition. Sure. That he, he, that he exists to, like, he, that he works for the political establishment, and if he endorses a candidate, that means that candidate is dangerous. Right. Um, not because they're white supremacists, but they need, you know, to have that scarlet letter on them um right yeah but yeah that's a cheap it's cheap uh pr to get the retarded left and i say that with all anti-pc bias the retarded left to completely abandon their principles in the name of keeping their hands clean supposedly when it's so obviously a manipulation like you're saying i mean this is the thing i probably talked about it on the show before but like what blows my fucking mind is you have leftists who repeat Western news propaganda as though it's real, knowing full well the the most 101 version of even the most reactionary Marxism-Leninism or Trotskyism is the Western propaganda machine is lying to you. So why do you accept what the Washington Post says as true when you know it's owned by fucking Jeff Bezos, who has a $600 million contract with the CIA? You know that these motherfuckers are all working together. You know that they're all owned by the same people. You know that there's media consolidation to the point unimaginable in human history up until now in a modern society. Yet somehow we have to take that those people at their word. And if somebody says, if, if, if in Tulsi's case she meets with Assad, oh, she's a fucking, she's a terrorist now. What are you talking about? What is she supposed to do? Obama talked to Putin every fucking day. You know why? So we didn't get into a nuclear war. Does that mean uh, Obama's a Russian agent? I mean, and it's one thing for the liberals and MSNBC to say this. It is quite another for people who call themselves socialists or communists to be repeating verbatim CIA fucking talking points. Like uh, this is it's to the point where I just think they're my friend had pointed out. We thought we needed a year zero for the left. Well, all along, there never was a left to begin with. We haven't had a left in the U.S. probably since the 1930s. 
And we need to call, we need to reckon with that fact if we intend to elect Bernie, those of us who are serious, because these people will fight tooth and nail just like they did in 2016. I am seeing people who are attacking Bernie for fucking nine months all of a sudden saying he's the only answer. Completely cynically, American leftists. This has got to fucking stop. And the only way it stops is from below. Like, this, if we need a fucking joker moment in this in this country, that's why we need it. Because without Bernie, we are fucking dead. Yeah, and uh, part of what's so frustrating about this is that there's plenty plenty of literature on the consolidation of uh, of corporate power with, <clears throat> you know, just the, the mainstream press. I mean, manufacturing consent is as old as I am. And then like Society of the Spectacle came out in like 1967. And there's just a lot of things that just seem like so basic and uh, just uh, very elementary ideas uh, in leftist thought that seem to be just completely ignored or like an entire generation of people for, forgot about that, that part of the critique of our current uh, the culture we're in right now. Absolutely. Um, and it's really baffling to me. I mean, I think that was maybe part of what I was getting at at the beginning of this podcast when I, I said I was just baffled by the response to this Joker movie because if it had come out like 10 years ago, you know, it's just full of like Fincher and Scorsese and uh, just various other tropes from other directors. It's not, it doesn't feel like a new item, but something about the way it has arrived seems to expose the, I don't know, political amnesia of American liberals. Or how far and, to the right we've, we've gone as a... Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, it, well, it's like Jimmy Dore said, um, <laughs> people ask him, like, how do you get so popular? He's like, oh, it's real simple. Nobody will tell the truth about Syria. So if you just tell the truth about Syria, all of a sudden you're the best journalist in America. So, like, yeah. that used to be the purview of the fucking right. left, like you're yeah. saying. Like... These are just boring old 1980s Chomsky talking points that we seem to su have suddenly just abandoned in the service of fighting Trump. Give me a fucking break. Like, they have to know that they're lying. That's where I don't even believe, like, people's self-delusions about fighting Trump on the left. Like, they have to know Trump's a symptom. They have to be able to see at a materialist level what Trump has or hasn't done compared to Obama. But they refuse to look at it because it's more comforting to yell at Donald Trump, i.e. yell at their boomer dad, than it is to take seriously what revolutionary struggle may entail. And what getting our hands dirty means as leftists, if we're not LARPers, is to fucking elect Bernie or we're all dead. So I got yeah. I mean, on that note, that's a great place to end, but you can keep going. I have to leave, but I don't want the conversation <laughs> sure. to end just because I leave. So it's up to you guys. Okay. I uh, take yeah, I can, I can pack up. You know, it's fine. Joe. Um, I, I think I'm done. Okay. No, this is good, though. <laughs> I'm finished. All right. Well, well, thanks for coming on and we'll definitely have you back. I agree. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Joe. All right. Adios. Yeah. Have a good night. Life is short, it is difficult, but sometimes it is very good to say yes.
clever that I was pissed about I know that most of you relate to some extent God, I know how it sounds And I'm glad I became more human Stay, don't go We're like halfway through the halftime show Do not let this one end Before you emerge as the winner Don't be alone. 